0: And it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting
1: it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush.
0: And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis.
1: We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right.
0: Think health on 2SCR
2: 107.3. Welcome to Think Health, I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show...
3: and Most people actually can't tell you. They don't know. They just go, I just sleep on it. I don't know what it's made of, It's made of spring, you know, it's made of foam. Uh, So they have no idea what it's made of and how old it has been.
2: Finding the right mattress for you and which mattresses can actually do damage to your back. And health star ratings on cereal. What do they mean, and does the system actually indicate nutritional value? That's coming up on Think Health. But first.
1: Uh, we have a kind of almost like a Lisa Simpson and Bart Simpson situation in our family. So basically, we have our firstborn. Our daughter was just absolutely compliant. We had no troubles at all. And then we had our son and it was quite a huge shock for us.
2: This is Geirdra. Geirdra is a mother of two with a five-year-old daughter and a son who's two and a half. And it was when her son came along that the dynamic of the family began to change.
1: So in playground he'd push and take things away from other children and then he was biting from a very young age he'd go into the playground and kind of just pull other kids off the slide basically felt that almost the whole time we had to kind of watch him and then save others from from him and kind of also things you know he'd pick something up a new toy or a phone or whatever he comes across and then Rather than, you know, looking at it and trying to understand how it works, he would kind of just go bang, 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 throw, smash, crash.
2: (laughs) When Geirdras son started acting up, she imagined he would just someday grow out of this behaviour. But sometimes he would take things too far.
1: The worst for us or the most upsetting uh, one was when he was hurting his sister, so biting or pulling her hair. And it was just enormous clumps of hair that would come out. Like She had a regrowth. (laughs) As in he'd pulled it
2: out to the point that there was like
1: a patch. Not like a whole patch, but it would be like a lot of hair. So there would be just a clump of hair in his hand.
2: Geirdra says it was when she was at her son's daycare that she came across a flyer.
1: Basically, it was very generic kind of, you know, wouldn't it be nice to actually learn about the ways you could make your relationship with a toddler better.
2: And it also included information about a child-parent psychological therapy program.
1: Now looking back, I think we should, yeah, it's very good that we've done it.
4: Generally, we say that if parents are noticing stuff in their kids that's of concern to them, and they think that the things they're seeing are out of the park compared to other kids, then we're happy to have a chat.
2: This is John McAloon. John is a senior lecturer in clinical psychology at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he also runs this child-parent therapy program. Before a family enters the program, John will usually chat with them over the phone to get a better understanding of how their child might be acting up. But if their behaviour is going too far, that's when he'll look at setting up a session.
4: Usually the behaviour is a range of hitting, kicking, biting, screaming, punching, throwing stuff. A lot of tantrums, a lot of meltdowns, um, out of proportion to the reason that the the tantrum or meltdown came about. Sometimes it's emotional stuff. Sometimes kids appear sad or very anxious, frightened, fearful, that sort of thing.
2: For John, he's not only concerned about the child's behaviour, but also how the parents can become disillusioned from their own child.
4: Parents will come in saying things like, I don't like my child, you know, or my child is so ungrateful, or they don't respect me from the outside it's difficult stuff to hear because how can a 2 year old respect like how does a 2 year old understand respect my child is bad you know stuff like that
2: the program john runs goes for 6 to 8 weeks with a weekly 90 minute session
4: within that program we see kids with their parents but first of all we see we see parents alone very importantly we see parents alone first 45 minutes is just us talking with parents
1: when we started with john's program the first kind of session was this offloading and we're like, oh, he's doing this and can you imagine, you know, he'd done that and it's like that in the playground and it's like this in daycare and it's like this at home.
4: And we talk about skills that we know there's a lot of evidence for in changing kids' behaviour.
2: What are some of those skills or some of those practices that you're trying to get parents to do?
4: One thing we want parents to do is to become very clear about stuff they want to see more of and stuff they want to see less of
1: you ignore behaviors you don't want to see or don't create big fuss or don't react in a kind of way that is exciting. One particular situation, he's eating yogurt at the table and spitting it. Basically, you can't take it away or kind of stop it, but you have to...
2: Do it calmly. Calmly,
1: and in a way you kind of give him a warning and you allow him to correct his behavior. And if he doesn't, you take it away and then that's it. If it's a tantrum, if it's a big scene, if he, you know, throws or swipes everything else off the table, that's fine. But basically not to kind of get into this kind of if he if he starts screaming, then you start screaming and then kind of just escalate from there.
4: We also know that if parents' attention is placed on behavior that parents want to see less of and this is totally understandable you know we have to get out of the house by eight o'clock so you've got to eat your breakfast you've got to get your clothes on you've got to brush your teeth can you brush your teeth brush your teeth will you brush your teeth you know you become problem saturated you become driven by the stuff you don't want to see so if we can turn that around and every time parents are able to see something that works for them they throw their attention on that
2: Girja says, like many parents, it takes a lot of willpower for her to not get angry with her son when he might be doing something like spitting yoghurt across the table. But it's the praising of good behaviour which she finds a lot harder.
1: I think it's harder than not reacting to negative behaviour. Really? Why? It's just kind of unnatural. You think it, you know, if somebody says, give something to someone or says thank you or something, you just don't expect that you have to kind of shower them with this whole kind of, isn't it amazing how <laughs> wonderfully, you know, your sister asked for it and you gave it to him. Well done. High five. I mean, <laughs> we take a bus to work, so he he goes, when I go to work and he goes to daycare. So most of the time when something is nice and everything is good, you want to check out or kind of just relax or enjoy it. You don't want to be commenting on that the whole time. Isn't it nice how you're sitting next to me calmly and you know looking through the window, I love it, this is great, and all these people <laughs> so are you listening say, you say, <laughs> yeah, those I have kind to say that because right. um you kind of just always comment on that and like really you're praise. building a tower or something, yeah, you just say that wow, isn't it amazing you you picked the green you know you, you chose this color so nicely, and this is right. so tall and you know, I love building towers with you. And, and, <laughs> and so there's like 15 minutes of, of that. And that, I think, probably was kind of the most powerful thing. And it, it kind of just seeps into your day then. So he's in a really good mood. And uh, I think the other thing that we realized at that time was that we actually didn't have those 15 minutes to play with him. <laughs> so before that, I realized we basically, we managed him. You know, in the morning you wake up, you have breakfast, you kind of rush through the door, then you get home, you have dinner, bath, read a book, bed. And he never had any time with us kind of one-on-one to actually do something that is fun. Right. And that, that was quite a realization to kind of think that, well... You know, for the first one, I guess the firstborn always gets that attention because you know they're amazing. You never seen anything like it. You just spend all this time with them, and you talk to them, you play with them, and then I guess the second one just kind of missed out on all that. So now, and and <laughs> that's the catch of John's program because now it's forever. <laughs> so the homework is forever. It's not for the eight weeks. <laughs> The 15 minutes of play every day. Right. And it's hard. It's hard to fit in, yeah.
2: Do you see those skills stick?
4: All things being equal, yes. So we have to be very careful that parents don't resort to previous strategies. You know, for instance, do this, and then the kid yells back, no! And the parent goes, yes! And the kid goes, no, yes, no, yes! And this kind of coercive cycle develops. But if we can make the gains that we see stick so that parents are really able to kind of not fall into previous traps to recognize previous traps and actively avoid them then we see pretty good results
1: so i think John Sting when when he kind of introduced this idea we're like oh yeah right as if it's going to help it's probably within a week it just absolutely changed everything so it's still happens we still have to kind of watch him but I really like I feel like I go to a new place I go to we a cafe or something and I don't feel like this kind of constant feeling like you're on on edge I can trust him a a bit more that he'll be actually much more kind of yeah not pulling hair or (laughs) or wiping everything off the table or (laughs) it basically transformed the family life as opposed to just the child but it's hard work Yeah, I
2: can imagine. (laughs) Geertra, ending that story. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. How healthy is your breakfast? For a lot of people, a bowl of cereal is a staple morning meal, but sometimes it's hard to weed out the healthy from the not so healthy. The Health Star rating is a voluntary system where manufacturers get their product rated on a 1 to 5 scale, 5 being the most healthy and 1 being the least. But what separates a 1 from a 5? And how does this rating influence what cereal consumers are buying? Paul Burke is an associate professor in marketing at the University of Technology Sydney and has recently undertaken a study looking at how consumers
0: are swayed by the front of pack logos. We first saw the major introduction in the cereals, and so as a result, you've got this uh, a lot of companies looking at each other saying, Hey, well, we've got just as good a product when it comes to a health star rating, or we want to modify our products to improve, and so it improves the marketability of those products within that category. But now we're seeing it applied to everything from yogurts, confectionery, uh, chips, popcorn, all these discretionary foods. So there is some criticism. The health star rating at the end of the day is is voluntary, and, and it's not mandatory,
2: In terms of if there's the health star rating, and it's kind of to show that perhaps this type of cereal has better nutritional value than another type of cereal, how do they determine how many stars it has? Is it like sugar per serving? Is it sodium? Like, what are the actual things that determine that?
0: Right. So it's kind of interesting because it has a positive and a negative type of approach in the sense that you get points for reducing the the number of risk nutrients that you have and that's looking at saturated fat, it's looking at sodium or more commonly salt, sugars and it's looking at per 100 gram, per 100 mils or or per serving size. So that's where you're losing points potentially if you're you're hitting those risky nutrients because they've been linked to uh, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, some form of cancer. And on the flip side, and this is where it becomes interesting, is that you're being rewarded for your performance on positive nutrients. So when it's looking at dietary fiber, protein, the proportion of fruit and vegetable and nut content as well. And that's where it also becomes interesting because we know that some fruits have more sugar, some fruits have more water content, which dilutes the nutrient content. So putting it all together is trying to hit the good and the bad.
2: In terms of the research that you're doing within this area, in fact, looking at consumer habits, particularly of parents purchasing Mm -hmm. cereals, do you see them being swayed by a higher health rating in the terms of they would buy a cereal that's got a
0: five-star as opposed to a two-star? That's what the research that we undertook uh, started to show. But the interesting part of the study is that we're also varying other marketing elements or other front-of-pack elements In terms of the price of the product, in terms of the imagery on the product, in terms of the written claims of the product, but also the colour of the product itself. And what we found was that the colour of the product was given more weight in terms of the parents' decision-making relative to the health star rating. So what we saw is that the parents were much more likely to reject the artificial-looking cereal in terms of those blues, the purples, the pinks, the greens even, they're more likely to reject those types of products and head towards the more sort of the brand colored products, those browns, those yellow corn sort of products that we see on our supermarket shelves. And they're more likely to use those visual cues than the Hillstar rating at all.
2: To me that seems like common sense. You would you'd kind of look at something, perhaps you'd look at Fruit Loops and be like, "Oh, they're they're yellow, they're green, all the crazy colors." You just assume that those have artificial flavourings or artificial colours as opposed to perhaps Wheat bix with a health star
0: certification. For you, what does that indicate? Well, we yeah, if we went down to the s- supermarket today and asked people, "Would you buy a 5-star rated product as opposed to a 2-star rated product with No other information they would say, yep, absolutely. But the idea of the study was to vary a whole lot of different things at once and see, okay, did it still make a difference? And if so, if consumers and parents are using this Health Star rating and it needs to be improved, well, this research is saying, well, we better make that improvement because this is a visual cue, this is a shortcut decision-making that we've shown that parents are going to use and if it's not right, then it needs some attention. The government is spending a lot of money in terms of educating consumers, in terms of the health star ratings existence and what it stands for, and trying to explain that these are within category comparisons and that these star ratings are standardised for those categories. But at the same time, we have to look towards other ways of informing consumers and getting more information almost simultaneously about this idea of whole foods and where we should be directing our, 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 our eating habits.
2: To make the health star rating system mandatory, would that then shine a light on products that might have kind of like a two-star or three-star that have not chosen to get a
0: rating because of that reason? It would have two effects. It would definitely call to light those, those products that aren't performing well in terms of this healthiness, but it also will motivate companies to potentially look at the makeup of their products and look at how can they improve upon those those star ratings. And it could be as simple as you know the types of fruits, for instance, that they're relying on in terms of an in ingredient. Some some fruits do better than others when it comes to the nutritional value that it provides relative to others. Uh, other products in terms of, of how they're being prepared are the instructions because that's another component of the health star rating that we haven't really touched on is that the health star rating is based on how the product is going to uh, be consumed in terms of its modified form. So there's been criticism, for instance, that's been launched by uh, the Choice Organisation at uh, Milo being given a, a very good star rating. And that's because, well, the instructions say to prepare it with skim milk rather than full fat milk or just to eat by itself so that's part of the health star rating is to look at the product in terms of its modified form in terms of how it's going to be consumed rather than its raw pure form and so some companies might start looking at that as a strategy Or as a mechanism to say, well, let's prepare the product in a different way or instruct consumers to use less water or more water, which dilutes the nutrients uh, in terms of that final product that's consumed. There's a whole lot of different things that uh, companies might have to start looking at strategically in terms of the, uh, the makeup of the product, but also the marketing of those products.
2: Paul Burke, Associate Professor in the Discipline of Marketing in the University of Technology Sydney Business School. What do you know about your mattress? Did you buy it yourself? Do you know where it came from? Is it a firm mattress? Is it a soft one? Well, according to physio Michael Lee from the University of Technology Sydney, the average person doesn't know a whole lot about the mattress they sleep on. A good mattress is not only important for a solid night's sleep, but to the general well-being of your back. But as Michael says, there are a number of mattresses out there that aren't doing you any good.
3: A lot of people, when they get back pain, they actually don't sleep very well. And naturally you think that we spend about a third of our time sleeping And mattresses plays a big role in how how well you sleep at night time.
2: What sort of back pain are they describing to you that it is? Is it like a soreness or an an aching?
3: What's that actual pain? Yeah, they generally complain of stiffness. They find that when they get up in the morning, it's quite stiff. They often have to take some time and sort of, you know, get up really slowly. Uh, People get back pain when they're turning in bed as well. So they get a sharp pain when they turn from you know, lying to the side to their back or, or vice versa. Uh, but generally, it's that dull ache that keeps them awake at nighttime so they don't get that quality sleep that they really need.
2: Someone's coming to you and saying they're struggling to sleep and mm-hmm. they've got back pain. Is the first thing you ask, what's your mattress?
3: I will probably ask a bit more about when and what type of pain they get. Uh, try to figure out, you know, is the pain due to muscles, is it due to joints, uh, is it due to some other, you know, more sinister causes. But inevitably, I will ask about mattresses because, again, that's often a primary complaint coming with. It's not just the pain when they move around, uh, but also pain that stop them from sleeping well. And they always wake up really stiff in the morning. Yeah, so during my history taking, I often will ask about the mattresses, uh, you know, for example, how long they have the mattresses for. What type of mattress it is, and most people actually can't tell you. They don't know. They just go, "I just sleep on it." I don't know what what it's made of. It's made of spring, you know. It's made of um, foam. Uh, people get secondhand mattresses passed down to them, uh, so they have no idea what it's made of and how, low, how how old it has been. What's a bad mattress to you as a physiotherapist? <clears throat> um, a bad mattress is uh, if you run your hand down the mattress and there's a hole, this little dip in the mattresses and also that can happen when when obviously our torso are different different weight uh, when people sleep on the same side of the mattress for a long time that can deform the mattress and meaning the
2: springs kind of lose their yeah, springiness exactly
3: yeah so when lie down, there's a little hollow hollowness in the mattress uh, and that will indicate to me the mattress is probably need to be replaced because uh, it, it lost that supportiveness you know for your body and if you lose that supportiveness, what might that do to your back? Well, we think that if you don't have the supporting nerves over the contour of your body or your, the shape of your spine, uh, what happens is that the muscles potentially will have to stiffen up to support your spine for you. That may explain why people are waking up with really, really stiff muscles and stiff joints.
2: So this is probably not the
3: best example
2: of where one should go to buy their mattress. Mm. But I recently bought a new bed, including the frame and the mattress, and I went yeah. to Ikea. Yeah. And there's kind of a, a an abundance of different Beds. styled mattresses. Yeah. They've all got their, I, know, I guess, foaminess or bounciness. Yeah. But is there really, like, is there a certain mattress for a certain person? Like, do people have different backs that something would work better for them? Or is that kind of a bit of a myth in itself?
3: It's a bit of a myth in itself. And I think the mattresses... Just like pillows, it's very personal. Uh, and, and I know, you know people and, and friends and family, even patients, some people just prefer a softer mattress, some people prefer a harder mattress. So I recommend people to go to bedding shops and lie on every single bed there is. Take your time, and I would suggest them bring the, the pillow they like to sleep on, bring that to the shop, and sleep on the pillow. Uh, that's the best way to find out whether, uh, whether something, because you can instantly tell. But I guess
2: just because it might be comfortable doesn't necessarily mean it's good for your back though, right?
3: That's a good point because now we're talking about, you know, people who have no back pain. Uh, you know, what? what's a good bed for your spine? And, and I think the general rule is that the spine should feel supported. So when you're lying on your side or your back, you shouldn't feel that anything is out of alignment or dipping down too much. It's totally different if you have a pre-existing back pain. And there are a lot of beds now that, Moving towards that side, more the customization. So there are beds that can increase the firmness in certain parts of the bed. So for example, your lower torso or your trunk or your shoulders and potentially decrease the firmness in elsewhere. But obviously that comes with a cost. That sort of bed can be up to $20,000, $30,000 just for a bed uh, for that customization. What's a good pillow? Again, a good pillow is uh, something that doesn't deform over the, the, the course of the night. And what do you mean by that? Um, so when you lie your head on a pillow, you should feel it's as supportive as the first second you lie on it compared to 10 hours later. So again, it's very personal. And a lot of people like um, uh, soft pillows because they can stack it and mold it to their body when they turn and toss. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and some people prefer something that's uh, a bit firmer, a bit larger. So and I think the important thing, it doesn't shouldn't deform over time, what
2: is the importance of having a good bed just to the general health and well being
3: of a person's back? Sleeping in a good bed with supportive mattresses is almost like deloading your spine. You know, give the muscles, give the joints a bit of rest. That's really important with the days that we are in now. We are working a lot in the sitting position. We drive everywhere, we sit down and do our work, and it's not uncommon for people. To sit up to five six hours a day, you know, doing nothing but sitting, and as you probably noticed, you know, we don't always sit optimally. Uh, we always slouch, and when we go home, we slouch on the sofa and watch TV for a few hours. Uh, so I think I think it's really important that we can give our spine a bit of a break.
2: Michael Lee, senior lecturer in the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.